0: okay I've written a lot of stuff through the years and um, you know I go back and read things and I think that's garbage and I throw it away and that's all right. I take a little piece here and that but this time of year things come back up in my blog and and stuff and I start reading articles that I wrote 5 years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago and there's always a recurring theme in the holidays and that theme is depression that theme is blues, loneliness, loneliness, and then there's another part of that theme that comes along with it. It's also a very common thing to receive a lot of calls about domestic problems. When I say domestic, I'm not talking about the GDP or any type of stuff in the State Department. I'm talking about in your house. Domestic violence, domestic arguments, problems in relationships, and the reason that that happens is because we're together. All these wise PhDs through all the years and all these psychiatrists and psychologists and all these people that have all the expertise in these things and have done a lot of studies in these things. they like, well, I don't know what's going on in the holidays. There's something that goes on in the brain. I know it's because we're together. We're together. We don't like each other. We're together too much. There's too much time off. We're not busy enough. And the next thing we know, we're at each other's throats. It happens. And so here we are, the church and we've come back. It's the holiday season. Everything's Christmas. Everything's great. And for some strange reason, there's churches that aren't going to be meeting next week. <coughs> uh, that's fine. You want a holiday. Great, it's a holiday. But, I mean, it's the holiday that supposedly centers on the birth of the God-man. And the God-man teaches in his word to be together with the saints as a simple foundation of a means of grace to which we find the center of our joy and the utmost promises of God after salvation. Trey has been doing a great job of undergirding for you. And so here we are this morning. We come to assemble together as a family of faith. And, beloved, we've all come, as I say, many times over with different attitudes, different mindsets, different problems, different thoughts, different things that are going on in our lives. Some of them good, some of them bad. I've had a particularly better week than I've had in a long, long time. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, but I'll tell you, there was a time there a uh, week before last where I was two days not picking up Scripture. You ever been two days not picking up Scripture? Driving in the car. Now I'll listen to the Word. Now you know what, I'll just do a podcast. Not poison my brain, that'll work. Let's do four hours of some podcasts about what doesn't matter. Could be anything. And at the end of a day without the Word of God, who I really am, is very evident. And then day two, what do you do? Like, ah, no sense in going back to it now. I haven't eaten in a day. Why eat now? Doesn't matter. It's just who I am. I'm miserable. I'm miserable forever. Everybody's miserable. The world stinks. Everything stinks. You stink, and you're ugly, and your mama's ugly, and everybody's ugly. I mean, you know, and you just get, that's my mindset. I get into an extreme melancholy state, and it poisons everything that I am. And you know what's crazy? The phone calls, you go, I don't want to talk to that brother. But i got nothing else to do. I'm on the road. Hey, what's happening? Bah humbug. Merry Christmas. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> That's what I told this guy. Man, I just want to tell you, man, I'm so encouraged. By what? I just, what you posted on Facebook. I'm like, You don't even know why I posted that. That's passive aggressive meanness. You know, not in reality. But the Lord is so faithful. I'm going, God. But just in those little tiny moments of celebrating the intimacy that we have in Christ, there's this supernatural work that comes in us. It's like, well, you know, life is great. <laughs> I need to get the Bible out. Everything's awesome. sun is beautiful. You know, the sun's hot. We hate it. And then the sun is beautiful. It's too hot. Well, now it's cool. It's too cold. It's wet. It's damp. You no, know, that's a nice, cool, crisp day. We're schizophrenic at heart, depending on the mood that we're in. And, and, and for me, my physical well-being is directly tied to my emotional and spiritual state, my mental state. And if I can stay healthy in my body, if I feel rested, if my nutrition's good, man, I feel, like, amazing. But when those things, and they haven't been, and, and you all have had those same experiences in life, when those things go bad, we have to be extra disciplined. And let me tell you the foundational discipline of the body of Christ is to be in this service on Sunday morning. Can I use the phrase, come hell or high water? You may not understand that, but you know, hell comes and it's like, oh no, apocalypse, what are we going to do? You know, Well, we come to church. High water, we get in the boat. I mean, after Matthew, we didn't have power for four days. We had service in the dark. Some years ago, we were standing here and the power went out. And we just kept on teaching, kept on praying. It's not about the niceties or the environment. It's about what we do as a people. And we're here this morning so that the word of God can teach me to teach you that we together can do things that God has called us to do because of what we know about who He is and who we are in Him. And so, preaching exposition is something that we often use the, 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 the phrase and the, and, and the terminology, but we talk about exposition. And it means, you know, just basically exposing and elaborating and illustrating and showing and revealing what is in the text. And we talk about the context of the Bible. So we don't just say, oh, I'm going to take Mark 6, 3, and I'm going to preach an entire series on that one verse. You may be able to, but the way we understand what we read in anything written is the context in which it's written. And there are different types of approaching and administering teaching to the church when it comes to preaching. Exposition, and more importantly, verse by verse, exposition. Exegeting, which is letting the text speak for itself, taking out of the text the meaning rather than reading into the text the meaning. Is the standard practice because if Paul wrote the letter as it stands we do well to read it as it stands. If John wrote the gospel or a letter and James and so forth, we'd do well to read it as it stands rather than just jump into parts of it. Now, we can go into parts of it when we're familiar with it. So this is a review, beloved. But if we're not familiar with the Bible, then coming out of text and context can be dangerous, even for the preacher, teacher, pastor. So we find in one of the little tropes that, People run and the things that sort of is, it's been funny through the years, but you know, I can't read a verse. I'm all like, well, let's go back. Well, let's read the whole chapter. Well, let's read the first three chapters. You know, to make a two minute point, we spend 15 minutes reading material. And that's basically what you're going to get this morning. You're going to get the whole chapter two of Philippians. You're going to get pretty much, you know, 20 verses of Luke 22. And uh, you're probably going to get the whole chapter of Hebrews four. And some people would say, well, that's not exposition. It absolutely is exposition. For example, if I want to talk to you about Paul's passion and foundation to understand the sovereignty of God and his power in the gospel, I can take you to Romans 1.16, right? For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Greek, then the Jew. I mean, first to the uh, the, the, Gentile, you know the point. First to the Jew, then the Gentile. I'm favorite. I have favoritism. It's the power of God. But that doesn't, he just asserts that. It's not an explanation, is it? And even then, there are other places in the scripture where Paul gives explanation of that. So I can, because I have familiarity with the whole of the scripture and with each letter written therein and continue to become familiar with it, I am safe to say I see a pattern. And the pattern then, I can go to this text and this text and this text and say, look what Paul does in each of these texts. Now we've learned something interesting about how Paul applies his faith. For example, grace to you. Grace be with you. Paul makes those introductions and exits of all of his letters. Isn't that amazing? And then he tells Timothy, as we'll see sometime when we get to 2 Timothy, as we'll see, he says, God's grace will strengthen you. And so... Paul, by the way he writes, thinks that God's grace is found in the letters he writes. Isn't that something? Now, does Paul teach that? By the way, yes, he teaches that. By way of application of his own writing. To the point he tells the people of Thessalonica in the second letter, he says, Listen, I'm telling you how you ought to act, and I'm telling you how you ought to approach these issues. And I'm telling you what you must do according to the gospel. And if anybody doesn't listen to what we say, count them not a brother and get them out of your life. Put them on the side of the curb until they come to their senses. Do not feed them. Do not talk to them. Do not high-five them. Do not fish with them. Do not message them. Because they are ruining, they are terrorists amongst the brethren, you see. And I think that's another reason that sometimes so many Christians feel oppressed, depressed, and all the other est. Whichever one you want to put in there is because we are not submitting to the simplicity of God's instruction. And we're not learning the overall reality of the humanity of Christ. The mind of Christ. So this morning, I want to show you just using three different things. And John 17 comes to mind too. i will probably talk about some things there. But Christ's humanity is completely human. Did you know that? Fully, truly only human. Christ's humanity, His human person, His human nature, His human body, His human mind was human. It wasn't this hybrid divine superhero thing. Jesus wasn't a man with God sprinkled in. He was God literally, fully, truly man and at the same time always truly, fully, eternally God. We can't fathom how that works but the scripture teaches us that Jesus was hungry, that Jesus cried, that Jesus was scared, that Jesus suffered, that Jesus worried. Why? Because these are natural human emotions. In 2006, I was told by a uh, I won't even say a mentor, I was told by a spiritual authority over me that basically if I didn't have absolute joy and excitement about coming to church every day and the ministry we were doing, then I wasn't called of God. And of course I had grown up a little bit enough to know that that was nonsense and I'm thinking, you like this stuff? Your email? You know what I learned is that people with problems weren't calling him, they were calling me. And it was no fault of him. It's just his perspective. But for me, I'm a different type of God. People come to me with the problems. That's great. Here's a solution. Christ is the only joy that we can hold to, that we can sink teeth into, that we can tether ourselves to. And if that isn't your joy, you're going to have a hard time. So what's the discipline? The discipline is to understand that we're in good company. We're in good company. And the Christian life is not about, whoa, it's me. We're not Eeyores walking around with clouds over us. Clouds are chasing us. Clouds are there. But we Eeyore has a reason to be upset because he's got a thundercloud over his butt all the time. And he's purple, gray, or whatever color he is. I mean, I'd be upset too. But how odd would it be if this thundercloud and lightning bolts and he kept getting damp and, and, and struck, would he be joyful? People would say, "Yours nuts. Well, beloved, I think that Paul says the same thing. I think the scripture, Dr. Luke says the same thing, doesn't he, in the book of Acts? He talks about how the apostles, and they came out of pr- imprisonment, and, and, and they were excited to have been whipped, flogged, cat and nine tails, their bodies ripped open for the sake of Christ. Can you believe that we were persecuted for the Lord? I remember when I first learned about fasting in a particular ministry. And they were trying to teach me. I was in college, actually. And they are like, oh, we're going to fast next year, next month, or whatever. And we're going to fast. And we're going to give God this. And we're going to give God that. And we're going to, you know, and everybody walked around like, oh. And I made a joke. I said, we need to make T-shirts during this fasting week. It says, don't bother me. I'm fasting. That's not the point to walk around mopey dopey. But we're not supposed to fake like everything's okay either. We're not supposed to put on a happy face. Silliness. Turn to the scripture, Philippians chapter 2. So this week and next week, I'm going to talk about Christ and his humanity, his mind, his mission, and his message. This is all a repeat, but I want us to focus on this because a lot of us are like, yep, yeah, January, I'm going to make some changes, right? No, you're not. You're going to make some assertions. You're going to make some assertions. Philippians 2. So if there is... See, I can't stand starting a conversation with so, but there you go. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, in lowliness, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now stop there for a second. That's a tall order, isn't it? That's a tall order. For the first time in my human life, I can feel a root of bitterness in my spirit that I don't want to move out. Have you ever had that? That blows my mind. It scares me to death. Because by nature, I'm talking about just my character and personality, as long as I can remember, even in great, I'm an empathetic person. People treat me badly, I must have done something wrong. People accuse me of something, there's probably some truth in it. And now, like, I don't care. There's certain areas in my life, I don't care. That's a bad place to be for a guy like me. So I see this and I'm going, hmm. Do you mean this person, Lord? Do you mean this situation, Lord? Yes. Well, Paul wrote that. Well, the Lord, the Lord gave it to us through Paul. Yes, this situation. And then in verse 5 of Philippians 2, he expresses why this is important. Have this mind among yourselves. And then he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus? So when we say, well, I don't have that mind, of course we don't in our flesh, but in Christ we do. How do we know it? We read the word of God. We come to the assembly. We're instructed. What good does it What good does it do us, church, when we have the details and the theological structure of the mind of Christ, but no call to act on it? You know what it does? Zero. Nothing. It does no good for us. So the call is not to act in guilt and fear, but to act in celebration because of grace. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. We have been given the mercy of God. When we deserve the wrath of God and the very Son of God has taken the wrath in our place. So what in the world is different? We look to the gospel. We look to the person of Christ. We learn Christ. But it's not the learning of Christ and getting everything correct in our minds cognitively that causes us... To have the experience of what's called born again. It's being born again. And then in God's timing as He wishes, He teaches and trains us in time through the teaching of the scripture. And in the first century the scripture was taught very in very small pockets. By a very small number of people in comparison to the population. Now... You just do a search on any medium and, and there's 9 billion, trillion, trillion theologians spouting, spewing, saying things that are not even correct, nor the application, nor are they qualified to speak to the people of Christ. Why do we listen to those who are not qualified that we ourselves are also not testing in real life and intimacy? <clears throat> we love the Bia Be No, we. We love the my way, right away, right now type. Was that Burger King's old slogan? <laughs> or Wendy's, I don't remember. We like the fast food theology. Just give me the list. Tell me what I need to know. Let me put it in there. Let me take a screenshot, and now I got it. Get out of my face. But see, that's not the mind of Christ. So what that you know the truth? Who cares? And I'm not saying that in a reality. I'm just saying that, that that's really how the Lord will look at it. There are a lot of... I've had professors through the years brilliant people, could articulate the gospel of grace in in ways I never thought possible. The depths of the sacrificial system and the expression of how the gospel and the cross of Christ satisfied all of those requirements, all 619 or 13 or 14, I can't remember now, of all the laws of Moses. And then yet, they didn't trust in any of it. They didn't trust in Christ at all. They did not have a resolve. They trusted in their understanding of these things as their way to eternal life because I have discovered, you know what that is? Gnosticism. What is Gnosticism? We find higher knowledge and higher knowledge makes us better. No, it doesn't. Higher knowledge puffs up and what does higher knowledge, what does that puffing do? Causes us not to depend upon the wisdom that comes from Christ. We can... Learn about things, and we can engage with things. And I think as believers, we need to do more to engage in the biblical context with the things that are actually we deal with in our lives, whether it be politics or economics or social issues. We need to engage in them as they come along, but we need to do so through the lens of the gospel, not the lens of the culture that's saying it's the gospel. If I ever started teaching us how to appropriate that discernment, Some of you may leave the church. I'm not kidding. Because idols don't wear name tags that say idol. If they did, we'd be like, oh, that's an idol. So the mind of Christ is ours. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ, who, now he's talking about Christ, verse 6, Philippians 2, Christ, who, though he was God, he wasn't the form of God, he was God, he did not take equality with God, he did not take being God, a thing to be grasped, something to push up, something to express. I'm God. That's a, when we lived in the Bay, that that was a, a common Muslim, apologetic against Christianity. Tell me where Jesus ever said he was God. I said he did better than that. He said before Abraham was, I am. He took the name of God alone. My, and that's, that's, that's better. Because anybody who was in leadership or who was in authority or an elder or, 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 or a teacher would be considered God. The, highest. the word God is not a name. The word God means what? The highest of all. So in the Supreme Court, we have the justices. They're the gods of the court. That's a good use of the term. The word God is not his name. The leaders, the God, the CEO, the presidents, they would be called, in antiquity, they would be called gods. And Jesus is the God of gods. The Lord of of Lords. Because see, Caesar was Lord, right? And all through history, we see Lords and ladies and serfs and peasants and all sorts of different things. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the God of gods. He's the highest of all highs. He's the King of kings. He's the highest of all kings. His name is The Lord Saves. Joshua, Yeshua, Esu, Jesus, whatever language it was written in, whatever language it was translated from, there's, there's no magic in the actual language or the tongue of a particular season or time. That's, that's a bunch of nonsense I've heard recently. Well, that's really not his name. Oh, okay. You get that right. Let's see if that'll get you into eternal life. It won't. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count that equality with God a thing to be made much of, a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold on to that. But in turn, verse 7, he emptied himself. So now what we see there at the beginning of verse 7 is exactly what Paul has taught us to do. Any encouragement, complete my joy. Same mind, same love, being in full accord, one mind, nothing not to, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility and lowliness, count others more significant than yourselves, looking out not only for your own interests, but the interests of others. This is the mind of Christ. Beloved, this is not something we can just wake up and go, yeah, I'm going to do Jesus things today. I'm going to be the mind, I'm going to have the mind of Christ. It's not possible. So we must invest ourselves in the hearing of the word of God that we might be reminded, not taught, this isn't new, this isn't an epiphany, we know this. We don't move into this and from guilt or shame, we move into this out of adoration. And that adoration comes through time. How do we adore people? By spending time with them. And sometimes, as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, the more time we spend, the less we realize we adore them. Because it's too much time. The holidays. You people need to go back to school. You people need to go back to work. You need to go do something. And being found, well, wait a minute. He emptied himself, verse 7, by taking the form of a slave, being born in a human body. Being born in the likeness of men. That's what that means. He was born in a human body. God the Son created a human body for himself. That's something else. We're not going to be able to fathom that. We just have to accept it as it's taught. He emptied himself. He he stepped out of glory. He stepped out of the cosmos. He stepped out of the ethereal realm of the heavens. He stepped out of overseeing creation. And he stepped into creation. And he made himself human. And being found in human form, he didn't just show up and say, Look here, I'm God. Watch this. Worship me. No, he pointed to the Father, to the one that was in heaven, to the one that sent him, from where he came. And he submitted to him and he obeyed him. This is the mind of God Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he came here not to be worshipped and adored. He came here to be crucified and die and be raised from the dead. He came here to be despised and hated. He came here to be the propitiation of the sins of his people, to satisfy the wrath of the Father in justice and righteousness. That's his mission. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what the season of Christmas in its construction is supposed to point to. It's not a biblical holiday. We, it's just something that historically people have done. That's what the church did in antiquity. Well, look at all this crazy stuff that's not Christian. Let's just make every one of these about Christ. All Saints Eve, Easter, Christmas, and so on and so forth. Any people that they invaded and forced faith on by the sword, they adopted all their holidays. Huh? You got devil worshiping? Let's call it deviled eggs. Fellowship. All right, there we go. <laughs> you know. It's a devil... Deviled egg fellowship. So if we choose to participate in cultural things, it's not wrong. It's our conscience. But my goodness, have we lost sight of the birth of Christ on January 1st and February 5th and July 8th? Jesus came in human form, verse 8. Humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross, which was the worst death that could be imagined at the time. And not only that, it was the death of a condemned, guilty, wicked, vile, grotesque, horrible person who needed to be removed from society. So the God of the cosmos the most perfect person to ever walk the earth in human form, submitted to being charged and seen by the masses as the vilest of vile. Therefore, verse 9, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus Every name should bow, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's the mind of Christ a lowliness in his humanity. You know what's crazy is that we aren't even like that by nature, are we? As empathetic as I can be, I'm not a lowly person. I care. How about I can hurt your feelings? I can get upset. I can push my weight around. I can yell and scream. I can dominate verbally. If I wanted to, I can get physical. And here's this mind of Christ. It's the mind that we're supposed to have. And when we stop there, we go, oh, wow, golly, oh. Then we find ourselves in this turmoil going, how am I supposed to engage this in my life with the life that I'm living, with the issues that I'm going, I've got more on me right now that I can handle. I just can't practice this. Well, then let's look at another text. Then we find ourselves being guilty. Go to Luke 22. We find ourselves being guilty and then that guilt overrides everything that the Lord is doing. When I say stuff like that, people go, oh, Lord, you can't override. Yes, you can. You cannot override your salvation. You cannot cannot walk away. But did Jonah not override the call of God? Did he not run? Did he not despise? Did he not get on a boat? And eventually, what did God do? Swallowed him up, spit him out on the shore where he needed to be. The question is, do you want to go there peaceably or do you want to just get there? By any means necessary. The Lord's not going to let us go, beloved. We're not going to be tossed aside. We're not going to leave the faith. And it is okay to contemplate leaving the faith. It is okay to sit there in your mind and go, this thing's so bad. Is this crap even real? Can you say crap in the pulpit? When I was 23, I said that one time. And somebody, oh! This garbage, is it real? And the Spirit of God teaches you that it is. And then you wake up and you're like, you know what? I got to resolve. There's no way getting away from this. No way that this isn't truth. This is because Christ is my truth. It's not the data of Christ, it's not the printed material of Christ. It's, the, it's Him. He's the truth. And so the Spirit of God testifies to my spirit that I'm His child and there's nothing I can do. I try to argue against it. I try to say, no, probably not. Ah, But yes, I am. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And beloved, nothing can separate you. And Jesus has this Last Supper with his disciples. In the Gospel of the Synoptics, that means Matthew, Mark, Luke, those that sort of walk together. And then we got John, which I think is the best. But, you know, it's definitely my favorite because it doesn't make me cry so much. It doesn't just rip my soul out because there's not so much interaction with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I don't have to see all that damnation and that rebuke and that reprobation preached. I don't like it. But in Luke 22, starting in verse 28, Jesus is done. He's had a little conversation with the disciples and he says these words, you are those who stay with me in my trials. Now think about that. Here's Jesus in his humanity. He's had trial after trial after trial. I mean, understand this. Jesus was born in a stable. Jesus was born... In lowliness, the God of the universe, born into the world and humanity. How would the movies do it? It'd be the spectacle. It'd be like Sinai with dancers. Halftime show. Jets flying over. 25,000 guns salute fireworks. Beyonce or Celine Dion or some diva singing some amazing Oh, holy night. You know, that kind of junk. And everybody be like, oh, so powerful. It's called amperage, it's called decibels. It's not the Spirit of God. I promise you. Yeah, my emotional core is struck when a symphony orchestra is tuning. It's like, oh, why am I crying? I don't know, but that was powerful. That's not emotional. It's just like, wow, something that just, It just triggers some nerves. That's not divine. And Here is this birth of Jesus and this nothing, no room for him because that's what the prophets said. Nobody knew. The only people that did know were outcasts from society, were nasty shepherds, stinky herders. And then nobody heard anything from Jesus in the Bible until he was three years old. After that, when the men from the east come following the star by the Spirit of God, don't even know this God, but they're following this God. And they go and they bring gifts to this king. And they go and they seek Herod. And there's Herod, where's this baby? This new king that's born of Israel. I heard not about no king. Who are you talking about? Okay, oh, cool, that cool. Okay, here we go. You find him. So I can thank him for coming. And you can tell me where he's at. We're going to be like this. See, that's, that was Herod's idea. And he was going to chop his head off. So when these guys got another leading by the Spirit, after they found the child, toddler, playing at the feet of his mother in the house, and give him gifts, it's like, what in the world? This Jesus, this guy's coming from Asia and bringing all this expensive gifts. What is going on? And you don't hear anything else about Jesus again until he's twelve. Because what happens then? Because Herod then says, I tell you what, every child from three to zero dies. Every firstborn male child dies. I'll get him. So God the Spirit sends Joseph, Mary, and whatever other children they have in Jesus to Egypt. And then from there to Nazareth, which nothing royal comes from Nazareth. Or Claxton. Or Statesboro. Where do you live? Polar. <laughs> you see? Does that sound impressive? Manhattan. Oh wow! You're a writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're an actor. Hollywood, Los Angeles, Polar, Pembroke. Nobody wants to talk to you. You can be like on fire, shooting laser beams from your eyeballs. Man, that's great. He must live in Detroit. He must be from Chicago. He must be from, you know, Austin. He must be from... Pooler. I mean, you know. Claxton. No, no. I was like, that's not the place. Mistaken. I mean, you literally lose credibility in the world when people find out where you're from. I loved being thought British when I lived on the West Coast. This ain't British. But it sounded British to them. Because none of them spoke English as a first language. Anyway, so, you know. You're from London. Sure. So make you respect me more. Give me some biscuits. No. Jesus was nothing. A nobody from nowhere. And he comes on the scene and this glorious manifestation of God the Spirit with Elizabeth and Zechariah and the whole world like, "Wow, our savior's coming. What's going to come of this guy?" And then John the Baptist shows up out of nowhere 30 years later. Bugs in his teeth, his hair's all matted, look like he's on, like he's, I don't know, drugs, wearing animal clothes, not bathed. You've seen them, they come into church. They've asked you for money. You've seen what a homeless person, that's what John the Baptist looked like. The kingdom of God is at hand. I'm going, oh, what do you see when, what do you think when you see people like that on the streets? The same thing they thought about John. And so here is this magnificent prophetic reality of Israel's redemption and glory. Homeless man with grasshoppers in his mouth. Hey, I'm from Pooler. I mean, you know, nothing wrong with Pooler. It's a very, man- I mean, it's, it's just it sounds funny. Nobody knows where it is. Savannah? Huh, you know, I know where that is. That's a great little city. It's not when you first tell somebody you live in Effingham County. Well, you don't have to be ugly about it. I mean, Ham County can't be that bad. And then he says, this crazy man says, Behold! The Nazarene. The Lamb of God. Isn't this a cocktail of ridiculousness? The whole system of Judaism is going down the toilet. That's what the Pharisees thought. The entire system. Everything, our piety, our poshness, our presentation, our place in the world, whatever alliteration I can come up with, and all this stuff, we just just we are ruined. We gotta put these people on the peripheral. Can't bother them because look at their crowds. We've got to play politics here, gotta keep them at arm's length. So they had to get Rome involved to get rid of Jesus, and Rome had to fear the ants in order to do what God had ordained for them to do. You know, the movie Ants. One or two can't hurt you, but they all get on you, you're in trouble. Rome looked at Israel because of their number as a threat if they didn't do what the political heads of the Pharisees wanted. And that was God's design. So here's Jesus now coming into this four-year ministry of public teaching, hated and despised. And he's had this supper with these men who have walked with him. Judas has gone to do that which he was intended to do. And Jesus says to them, Luke 22, 28, though you have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And that's not a literal sense there. It's an expression of rule and authority by sharing the glory of the rule and authority of God the Son, whom God the Father exalted to be the name above all names because of his submission and lowliness and suffering in this world and his humanity for the sake of God's righteousness. You see how these texts tie together? And then Jesus says to his beloved Peter, Simon, Simon, look here. That's what behold means. Look here. Look at this. See this. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, Peter's going, well, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison right now. I'm ready to die right now. What do you mean when I return, when I've turned again? What do you mean when I've repented? What do you mean when I've changed? Jesus said, I tell you right now, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And we don't get any more from that. We know the story, right? What's the emphasis here? Look at the mind of Christ. Jesus is suffering. Jesus is about to face the wrath of God. Jesus is about to face human crucifixion. Jesus is about to face the separation of his soul from his body. Jesus is about to face things that none of us will ever experience the way he experienced it. And he talks to Peter and says, Peter, the enemy, Lucifer, wanted to sift you, wanted to destroy you, wanted to pull you away because you are the zealous one. But I have prayed for you. Jesus is praying for Peter in his time of need. See, there's the practice. The Spirit prays for us in our weakness, Romans 8. When we don't know how to pray or what to pray, or we're so confounded in our despair that we can't even speak words or think thoughts. And the expression and the illustration, the imagery that Paul expresses in Romans 8 is that we groan with moanings deep. As if or like when a woman gives birth, oh! Is that your spiritual groan? Is that your emotional groan? Is that your mental groan? Christ is praying for you, and He says, "I sent you out with no money, or knapsack, or sandals. Did you lack anything?" They said nothing. He said to them, "But now let well, the one who has money take it, and a knapsack." And one who has no sword, they need to, you need to sell your jacket and you need to buy a sword. What's he telling them? Things are about to get real bad. You want to talk about thieves and robbers because they had one sword. And he says, well, that's fine. Y'all going to need some swords. And then later he says, we're not going to live by the sword. The sword is for your protection to get from point A to point B. The sword is not for your mission. It's another sermon. The scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgression. He was numbered with the sinners. He was numbered as a worthless, vile criminal. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he says, that's plenty. So everybody doesn't need a pistol. As long as we got a couple. And then he came out and went, as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. And he came to the place, and he said to them, he said to them, he was praying for them. He said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Do we pray that? You know, the Lord taught us in the model prayer. He says, this is the model that we lead me not into temptation. Why that never comes to my mind when I'm being led into temptation? I blame God for it. And then James reminds me, God hasn't tempted you. That's your flesh. Something caught the left side of your eye and you're going, yeah, I want to get an attitude now. Lord, why did you make me get an attitude? Why did you make me feel this way? No, that's me. Pray that you may not enter into temptation and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Take away this plan. Don't make me go through this. Now, is this something that sounds like somebody who's resolved? Is this the hero of the stories of old? Is this the epic reality of someone who really, really, really is a hero? No. See, we've been lied to, beloved. And I have friends who are in the armed forces. I have friends who are in law enforcement. I have friends who are in the medical field. And I have friends who have perished in all three instances. And I have friends who have survived great things. And they all say the same thing. I was scared to death. I did not want to do this. I did not know what I was going to do. I was wishing there was another way. But I had to do it. I had to go into the fire. I had to go into the wreck. I had to go into the water. I had to go into the battle zone. I had to go into the house. I had to save. It's not weakness to be honest. I don't want to do this. I'm scared to death. This is horrifying. No God, I don't want this. It's not sinful. To be honest with our Father. But yet culture has taught us the opposite. That's sinful thoughts. Stinking thinking. You know who tells you that? People who have never had to do anything. Or people who have been programmed to just say that. That's part of the act. That's part of the act that we're taught as pastors in the United States of America. In, In evangelical culture. You've got to be strong. You can't let people know that you're human. Would well, Jesus let us know He was human? But he says in the same breath, Nevertheless, not my will be done but yours. And there appeared to Him an angel from heaven strengthening Him. If it were not for the divine work of God's messengers, Jesus would have died in the garden in His human body. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, so much so that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them asleep for sorrow. Isn't that what we do? That's what I do. When I'm in pain, it's go to sleep. When I'm depressed, it's better to just go to sleep. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray. And of course we know he goes back in and there are accounts, but Judas comes and betrays him with a kiss. Jesus, in his humanity, prays for his people. Beloved, it is fitting for us to know the nature of our Lord That we might recognize the same human nature in us. And the difference is that in him it was never manifested from sin. Nor did it manifest sin. Imagine that. He never doubted the father's promises. He never worried that he wouldn't come out on the other side. He was fearful of it. And he resolved to know that the father's promises were secure. Why record this stuff? This is just Jesus' personal experience. Because it's to encourage us, beloved. I think sometimes we do too much damage to the church by trying to act like, you know, well, you're in good company because of Paul and Peter and all that. But you know what? None of us are, I think Trey said this two weeks ago, none of us are ever going to experience anything like those men. Ever. In our lifetime. Now, I say that and God may tear the band-aid off of everything tomorrow when we find ourselves on trains, but I doubt it. It's highly improbable. But I think every single day we relate to the sufferings of Christ. That's what Paul says. I think every single day we have a kinship with the human Lord of ours who prays for us to not lose faith. Who intercedes on our behalf. That he drives us to the assembly. He drives us to the word. He drives us because, beloved, I don't care what you came in here with today. Hearing the word of God, even read to you, is an encouragement to your soul. And there's a supernatural word that happens. And it may not last till 1205. But you got it right now. We don't go chasing that spiritual high. We discipline ourselves to maintain the disciplines that keep us centered and grounded, not floating. Suffering is common. Suffering is promised. 1 Peter, I love that. Go, go over there. Go to 1 Peter. i could have to just preach this text this morning. Y'all know this text. Blessed be the God, verse 3, of our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He calls us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, Jesus had to die to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven by you, who you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be received in the last time. That means God doesn't let us leave Him. In this you rejoice, what? The suffering. Why? Because we have the testimony of Christ. For a little while, though, if necessary, you've been grieved by trials. In order that, your faith is tested to be genuine. Because what drives us to quit? Pain. And Jesus experienced every amount of pain that any of us ever have or ever will exponentially greater because He could not give in for He had no sin. He stayed the mission. He kept the message. He is the Messiah. And so when we are pressed, our faith wins. Why? Because it's God-given. Successful faith is not avoiding temptation or avoiding doubt or avoiding despair or avoiding wanting to quit or avoiding making plans to quit or avoiding running away into the woods without clothes on or whatever it is that you do. It's in the midst of all those things coming to our senses and going, <laughs> I'm eating out of a pigsty, I'm going back to daddy's house. That's really the, the point of that, of that teaching. The pig style lifestyle the pig eating lifestyle the debauch the debauchery of the lifestyle of the Gentile it doesn't matter God has called his people from the Gentiles too to come back to the father who dresses them and bathes them gives them a name and throws a party on their behalf that's the prodigal son that's the point point. and your faith is more precious than gold and gold perishes when you burn it hot enough And the outside of that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result. What is it to result in? Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. The reminder of Christ, the waiting for Christ, the hope of Christ, and the day of Christ when we see Him face to face. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And then do you not see Him now? You believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. This is beautiful stuff. The promises and the power of Scripture, the prayer, the personal intimacy of the saints together in the assembly. We find that our joy is in Christ alone. And that that understanding comes through understanding the human nature of Jesus Christ and its suffering and even in His mind. Because I really think, and you've heard me say this before, I mean, you look, you look at the letter to the Ephesians, you look at Romans, you look at all these instructive teachings, all this instruction, Paul centers on the fact that the way we think and, and, and process things is 90% of the battle. And I'm making the thing, I'm just saying it's a majority of the battle. I don't want to put a percentage on it for some of you technical people. Well, I'm not quite sure how you came to that number. It doesn't matter. I'm just saying it's a large majority of our problems It's here. It's in my head. It's how I think. It's what I say to myself. It's how I'm approaching the day. (coughs) It's the attitude. It's the outlook. It's the perspective. Oh, you're teaching psychology. I am not. Psychology, by definition, is the process of how the human mind works, thinks, and does, and deals with ideas. In layman's terms. Paul deals with how the human mind thinks Concerning the ideas of the world around us and the world we live in and the life that we live, but we filter it through the understanding of the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ so that our wisdom comes from Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. See, cults create fear. Christ's people do not. Cults create fear by saying, watch out, you see what's on the news? Is there things to be fearful of in the world? Yes. Are there things to be angry about in the world? Yes. And I think we ought to stomp our feet and put our fists in the air when we need to. We need to say that which needs to be said, but we need to do it through the filter of knowing it's not ultimate. Right? As it relates to our... We're going to get up in arms. Get up in arms. We're going to be upset. be upset, but at the end of the day, even if it's inexpressible, our joy is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Who suffered greater than anybody ever will. Man, woman, child, old, young, rich, poor, white, black, green, yellow, potato, patata, tomato, tomato, carrot, a rutabaga. It doesn't matter. Christ has suffered more. And therefore, he sympathizes. The Lord Jesus Christ is not looking at us going, oh, these people, they're so stupid, such little faith. See, that's sometimes how that's interpreted. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. We'll close with this. Oh my goodness, all of the first three chapters lead us here. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, sounds a little contradictory, doesn't it? lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the gospel came to us just as to them talking about the Israelites in the Exodus. They were promised Exodus, they were promised redemption, they were promised life, they were promised a place as a picture of Christ and His church. And the minute they got out by the power of God, they were complaining about the food and the water and the walking. You know. Good news came to us through Christ, just as it came to them through the, the Spirit. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened to it. For we have been, for we Who have believed, enter that rest. As he said, I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken on the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That means he completed it. It's over. It's finished. It's a done deal. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Listen to this. Today... Saying through David so long after in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken another day about another day later. So then there still remains a true Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. I think that I talk about spiritual rest more than any other thing in life, because it is what I want. I want rest for my mind. I want rest for my body. I want rest rest for my relationships. I want rest for you. I want rest from the labor, from the toil, from the troubles, from the trials, from the temperature. I want rest from it all. I want it to be done. And it's not a death wish. It's a sentence of. It's a wish of life and living. We strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What was that? Unbelief. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of the soul and the spirit the joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give an account. I love the fact that Paul writes that in this argument in this way because that is a pretext. Verses 11 and 13 is a pretext that a lot of people use to overshadow their boisterous authority in misusing and abusing the Scripture. Well, the Word of God says... You ever heard a person preach that way? Somebody sent me a sermon from like the 1960s, and I listened to it in the audio last week, and the guy was talking like that for 38 minutes. And then God said... And I'm going, what in the world is this guy doing? I sent it to a couple of guys I said, who does? I can't... And it was nonsense. It was hatred. It was scare tactics. It was hell and this and that. And you're all going to burn. You're ignoring the word of God. And you're reading books about witches. And you're doing this and all that kind of stuff. And I'm going, what is this, a parody? These girls wearing them skinny hoes and the high heels. And I'm like, are you kidding? This is what God was talking about. Grace be with you. Wear a sack. I mean, you know, no. And I'm not saying we shouldn't contemplate how we look. But who cares? To quote a heretic, if my God isn't bigger than a tube of lipstick, I'd like to find another one. Since then, verse 14... This is to show us the power and the authority of God's word over unbelievers (coughs) in justice and over believers in justice and righteousness. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Do you believe that, beloved? If you hold true to that, and I pray that you do, you will have a better experience with your emotional weakness, with your mental weakness, with your physical weakness, with your spiritual weakness. We all have them. You have a better relationship. But we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who in every respect, listen to this, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I've already said this. I'm just proving it to you now. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. How many illustrations have I done over the last few years about that? We find ourselves weak, we find ourselves broken, we find ourselves sinful, we find ourselves angry, we find ourselves self absorbed, we find ourselves in all this mess. We feel as though we can't approach Christ or grace or the word or the people of God because we've done a really good job, people of God, through the history of the church of making people feel really bad about being human. And we've mocked it and we've ridiculed it and we've made them feel bad about themselves to the point that I don't know what's right or wrong anymore about what to say about anything. But I know what's true concerning Christ and His people. So I'll say that. And that keeps me safe. So we come to the throne of grace when we're dirty. When we're broken. And we're received. We're embraced. I mean imagine all the festal gatherings of angels. Everywhere in the cosmos. With an infinite range of expression. Showing adoration to God. Calling out the name of Jesus. Glory, 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 glory to the Lamb of God. And one of the children of God who were broken and despised. Who took the gospel and ran with it and trampled it under feet. And lived in a pig pen. And they realized they have just done horrible things. And they bust in the back door and say, Wait a minute, Father, I need mercy. We don't want our children to talk during service, much less interrupt the worship of God. Now, that's just an illustration. The point being is that our Father is always welcoming His children. And when we are in the Word together, God's power is working in us. I want you to see that. I want you to know that. The mind of Christ is is just like yours, but without sin. Without sin. And if he suffered, if he worried, if he feared, then we will too. And it proves our humanity. And it proves his humanity. And the resolve that he had to be obedient unto death on the cross proves his righteousness. Righteousness. And His death on the cross and resurrection from the dead proves our righteousness. Which is alien to us because it's His on our account. Rejoice in that, beloved, and rest completely. Pray for one another and engage in any way possible to encourage our family to be together on the Lord's day. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the foundation of our hope, Jesus Christ the righteous. Lord, knowing that there is not a disease or disaster or anything else that could take place in our life that can take us away from you, even though we feel so far away, it is because the nature of our own sinfulness, the nature of our brokenness, the nature of our fallenness, not because we are engaging in rebellion. But it's just who we are. It's what we are. We can do nothing else. So we thank you for teaching us through the scripture. For encouraging us through one another. Help us to be encouragers and listeners. To have empathy for one another rather than just trying to change each other. To trust in your work and your timing. That Lord, we would never all be weak at the same time. But there's always an opportunity for some of us to be strong. While others are weak. So that they will be strong when we are weak. Knowing that Christ alone is our strength. That his work is finished. That his heart and mind is unified with yours. And we have his mind when we submit to what you've taught us in your word. Which is to think of others. Teach us, Lord, to pray. For each other. So that we are being prayed for by others. Lord, give us the peace that we so desperately seek, the rest in every aspect of our being, which is found only in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's take the